Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. Hello everybody, I'm Brendan Rogers, the host of the Culture of Things podcast and this is episode 16. Today I'm speaking with Stuart McLaren. Stuart is the current Scottish National Under-16 Head Coach and Coaching Mentor for Performance Academy Coaching at the Scottish Football Association. He is a UEFA Pro Licence and AFC A Licence Qualified Coach and was previously the manager of Scottish Professional Football League Club Stirling Albion FC. Stuart has more than 13 years experience coaching senior professionals and elite youth football teams. Stuart began his coaching career as player manager for the Brisbane Strikers in Australia's NSL in 2003-2004, where he was also nominated for Coach of the Year. His other coaching roles include assistant coach with North Queensland Fury in the Hyundai A-League, football head coach at Loughborough University and co-coach of England Universities. He's also been a football scout for Football Federation Australia youth national teams. The focus of our conversation today is coaching, mentoring, leadership, and teamwork in high-performance environments. Stuart, welcome to the Culture of Things podcast, mate. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Great to speak with you. Mate, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. It's, uh, as we were sort of saying just off air, it's been a long time since we've spoken, and, and last time you and I sat down for a chat in Brisbane, the accent wasn't as strong, mate. It was a bit more Australian accent. What's going on? Well, that's that well-known uh, phrase, isn't it? That you're a product of your environment. So um, I've spent now in this uh, period of my life sort of nine solid years back in Scotland. So it's well and truly embedded itself into into how I sound. But no, don't 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 ever forget that underneath uh, I'm an Australian. Absolutely, I've got the passport to prove it. Good on you, buddy. And on that point, you you are an Aussie, a proud Aussie, and actually a proud Central Queensland boy. You you know very well our first guest on the podcast, which was Josh Rose, and you you tell me a bit about that. But how about you just tell us a little bit about your journey in football? You've been involved in football a long time. Those sort of days in Central Queensland, and just take us through to where you are today. Yeah, very much a tale of two countries. Brendan, uh, born in Scotland, but but grew up in Australia. My family emigrated. When I was really young, you know, first settling in Brisbane and, and spent a few years there before uh, my dad's work took us up to, to central Queensland. So I lived in a small town called Billa Wheeler and then moved on to Rockhampton where, you know, things started to really evolve for me in, in terms of playing football, uh, representing Queensland and the likes alongside yourself before a scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport way back in 1992. So, so that was a, a terrific two-year period that kind of gave me the launching pad, really, to go on and, and begin a career as a professional player that took in Wollongong. Uh, and then my first stint back in Scotland playing for Stirling Albion for a short stop in Hong Kong before settling back in Brisbane and, and playing the bulk of my career and, and probably the happiest period of my playing time anyway with the Brisbane Strikers. You know, that then morphed into coaching, as you said before. My first real role was a, a challenging one, but when you've got that kind of youthful fearless aspect to you. You, you, you don't look at uh, all the challenges you're going to face, you just go for it. And that was uh, as a player coach, age 28, uh, with the National League with the Strikers. And, and then, you know, I've worked in a few areas since, as you said, an assistant coach at the North Queensland Fury. I've also worked as an assistant coach within the, the Queensland Academy of Sport, 
men's and women's programs before um, my life took me back here to Scotland and, and I've had uh, a couple of roles since I've been back. You mentioned uh, I took Stirling Albion, a club that I play for. We played in the, in the Scottish Professional Football Leagues in League One initially, but unfortunately relegated into League Two. But prior to that, I was uh, the head coach at Loughborough University, which was a, a great three and a half year period, which gave me the, the opportunity to learn an awful lot. And now currently, as you mentioned, you know, the, the head coach of Scotland under-16 team uh, and f- perform a sort of dual role where where I'm uh, acting as a, a mentor for coaches within the professional academy structure we've got here in, in Scotland. You've been around football your whole life. You just you just love the game. Like, what what's that driver for you around football? Why do you love it so much, and why have you really dedicated your life to it? I think it can be traced back really to the very earliest days. You know, my, my dad played a very good level of amateur football here in Scotland, and some of my earliest memories are going to watch him play and you know kicking the ball around behind the back of the goal with my cousin, and just being fascinated by it. Oh, you know, obviously I had no understanding of what uh, professional football was or, or national teams or World Cups or like that. You know, those guys were, were your heroes. And once we'd emigrated to Australia, I distinctly remember watching the 1982 World Cup and, you know, just being enthralled by it all. Obviously started playing the game by this point and, and really enjoying it. Uh, and my dad made it clear to me that the, these guys that he was seeing on the TV playing in the World Cup got paid to play football. And I thought right from that day, that was the career for me. And as you say, I've been involved in the game, fortunately, from a professional point of view, right the way through since I've been 18 years of age. So that, that real love, that passion, that connection for the game, you know, was there from a very early age and it's only ever been fostered and harnessed, you know, in terms of the benefits that I see connected with football, not not just in terms of participating as a player or a coach, but all the other benefits that the game brings to, to people right across the world. What are some of those benefits that you see? You know, it's, it's interesting that I've been now in a couple of different roles within the Scottish FA. So initially it was a community development manager. So working with our affiliated national associations, so working with Scottish youth football, working with Scottish women's football, the Scottish schools football associations around programmes and how they might be able to, to develop and, and grow the game within their own associations. And you get to know other people within the department. So one of our colleagues in there has worked with the Scottish government and put together a large piece in what the social return on investment is in terms of you know football as a whole. So not just professional clubs, not just grassroots. And it's seeing the impact that it can have and there's a lot of stories that we've had from, from colleagues uh, right across the country, but, but one of them that, that hits home massively is, is how it can impact people's lives. So, unfortunately, you know, people do go through tough times and, you know, mental illness is obviously getting being made more aware of now. And, and the benefits that playing football or being involved in football and other sports can have on people when they go through tough times is just, it's just one of the, the amazing things that the game does. Mate, it's a great point you mentioned. I think I'm just going in my head now around just even what you and I are doing today you know it's been many many years since we've spoken but we played football together I think people that have played together or coached together there's always that connection there's always that relationship and it's almost like you just feel like you know your mates you can pick up the phone or send a message at any time if you've got contact details and say hey mate I'd love to do a podcast with you what do you think and you just like jump on board yeah of course that'd be fantastic that's what football does or that's what sport does doesn't it Absolutely, does it? It forms those connections, those bonds, as you say, Brendan. You know, and and you know, you'll, you'll hear it no matter what sport you're in. For us, it's, it's football, as we call it, or soccer, as it's known in a lot of places around the world. But you know, the, you're part of the football family. You know, and 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 everybody knows somebody, and and you're always willing to to help out. 
Uh, and it's one of the, the great lessons, I think, that, that my dad gave to me anyway. You know, no matter what you may achieve or, or what level of the game you're involved in, football is always about the people that you meet. And, and it is, you know, very true. Uh, I've got people such as yourself that I played with as teenagers and younger. And I've, I've got guys who the game has brought me into contact with in, in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months, who hopefully I'll be able to call on as mates and, and friends in the years to come. And you're there always as, as a support network, no matter what things you go through in your life. And I just think it's terrific that the impact that for us football, but as you say, sport in general can have on people's lives. Let's go into your roles as the under-16 head coach for Scotland and also your coaching mentor role. What I want you to do is just give us a bit of that difference between your coaching role versus the mentoring role you have and what you see and the the responsibilities you have in those two very different roles. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's, there's great similarities. You know, underpinning both of them is that willingness, that passion to want to help people, to want to make people become better at their chosen pastime, their chosen career, as it may be for us working in the professional scope of the game. So from a coaching perspective, you know, if I focus mostly on the role that I've got just now working with the under-16 players, I just feel that I'm in, I'm in such a, a privileged position because I get the opportunity to work with the very best players who are eligible to play for Scotland uh, at that age group. It happens to be the youngest age group that we work with, so it's, it's almost, there can be certain connotations to it, but it's almost an indoctrination period to, to how we expect national team players to play and how we expect them to behave. So I just think it's such a privileged position because you know each one of the players that comes through and is involved in any of our events, training camps and tournaments and the like, is just coming in with, with wide eyes. They're obviously so keen to impress, so honoured to be involved at that sort of scope. And I'm the guy that, that fortunately gets the opportunity to work with them and try and help guide them and, and try and help improve them and, and try and set them off on a journey that we hope takes in you know, a number of age groups through, through Scotland representation, but hopefully for them leads on to a, a more successful career uh, as a full-time professional in, in the club game. So... From that aspect, you know, it's, it's all about wanting the, to and having that passion to try and make people better. And the mentoring side of it as well is is, uh, is exactly the same thing. The mentoring role that I have probably has two, two parts to it where I work very closely with our coach education unit and tutor on our UEFA license courses. So UEFA A, UEFA B and our UEFA Elite Youth Licence. So working in, in that kind of formal coach education pathway, if you like, but then also working specifically with our heads of children's sections within our professional club academies to make sure that they can become the best heads of children's, you know, in the world is what our aim is, really, uh, to make sure that they can provide the best possible service for the staff and the coaches that work within them that obviously feeds on to the to the players and gives uh, them the best opportunity to try and develop. So so that's what we're trying try and do. I think in terms of the, the skills and the key differences, if I look at the coaching aspect of it, Brendan, you'll obviously be, be well uh, well aware of the kind of model that, that speaks about tell, sell, share and empower and the likes. And I always kind of think of that as a continuum. And I think particularly with the national team where we don't have as much direct contact with the players, you're probably working quite a lot within that kind of tell and, and sell uh, aspect. You know, we, because of the age of the players and they're still in that youth development aspect, you know, we try to work very hard at, at trying to empower them so that they, they create a deeper understanding about the, the types of things we're asking them to do and the reasons why. But if I look more then at, at the mentoring aspect of it, 
it's essentially just sort of being there as a sounding board. You know, it's not necessarily telling them where the answers might be, but but at least, uh, sorry, telling them what the answers are, but at least pointing them in directions of where they might find the answers, you know, because we're talking about coaches who may be on a on a certain path within their, their uh, certain journey where they have a certain amount of knowledge already. They're obviously working now with, with, with adults who are capable of, of understanding what it is that they want to learn, what their overall goal is. Uh, so I think the mentoring thing is just being, as I say, that that sounding board and being very much as a acting very much as a guide. One thing I want to just pick up on that you said really quite early. You talked about how they behave, and this is in relation to the under sixteen side of things. Can you give us a bit more on around the expectations in behaviour at that level? Absolutely. Yeah, so so we've fought very hard over the last number of years since our performance director Malky Mackay came into post to create a real consistent environment so that each of our national teams are not working in, in silos. So as in the under-21s, we'd be doing something in under-19s, it's a different environment. And you know, So we're looking for that consistency, that continuation from my age group, under-16s, through under-17s, 19s and 21s. So as I said earlier on, you know, the, there is an almost indoctrination for us and we've got some high expectations about how they should behave when they represent Scotland, but we also think that that behaviour is something that will serve the young players well if they're looking to forge a career within professional football, but also the behaviour that would uh, serve them well as people wherever their journey in life may take them. So it's trying to make sure that we, you know, trying to develop them obviously as, as football players and, and improve the, the tactical awareness and not so much the technical ability or the physical ability, as I say, because we don't get too much contact time with them in the national team environment, but making sure that they've got a, an awareness that they're also having, you know, that, that golden thing that people speak an awful lot about these days about being accountable. So as coaches, we make it clear that we'll do as much as we can to, to set an environment for them. But ultimately, it's, it's their career, it's their opportunity and they have to be accountable for each one of the decisions that they want to make, you know, whether it's doing something that, that enhances their opportunities as football players or whether they're sidetracked by some of the distractions that young people have. They have to be accountable for each one of the decisions that they make. So so that's a key thing for us. Mate, I love that word accountability. It's, it's a great thing. It's a really hard thing. It's the area that individuals and teams struggle with globally. So how do you set up those environments and what sort of conversations are you having as a coach to create that strong need for accountability? We use that word accountability. We've got a series of A's that we use that players might need to look at as as being attributes to help them go and succeed uh, as a professional football player. So they obviously need to have a certain level of of ability, which is acknowledged for us when when they're selected for, for a national team event. They need to have a certain amount of athleticism and obviously in the modern game, that's key. You look at the, at the high levels of football, every player is an athlete and all the best teams have great uh, you know, athletic capabilities. That accountability is, is huge as well. As you say, it's, it's being accountable for you know what takes place in the training environment, what takes place in the matchday environment, but also what takes place in the, in the, the lifestyle environment. So the players that I have the opportunity to work with, they're right on that cusp of youth development where they start to get offered their first professional contracts. So for us, again, it's just making sure that they uh, have an awareness as well of, of what it actually takes to go and succeed as a professional footballer. But that accountability thing is, is shared with them every time that they come in 
and have contact with us. So each time we have a training camp, each time they're selected for a squad to participate in a tournament, we'll have discussions with them on a formal basis, you know, via team meetings, where this, the same consistent messages are shared with them. We'll have more informal meetings where it might be done in what we'd call units. So we'll get the defenders together and speak about aspects. We'll get the midfielders together, but we'll also have individual meetings. But and again, it's it's trying to to make sure that we create a comfortable and a safe environment for them so we don't feel that the, myself and my assistant coach are kind of ganging up on individual players so so we make sure that those individual players and it sounds a bit a bit silly to a point calling them individual meetings where we actually pair the players up so they feel like they've got a bit of a buddy there and we'll speak about their, their accountability and, and what that means to them and what are some of the specifics that they are taking on board in terms of what their journey might be and the decisions that they're going to make to try and continue to improve and take them from the position that they might be in now to where they might want to be in six months' time, a year's time, and so on and so on. Let's transition into the mentoring side, but what I'd like to just do to link that is, how does your coaching role help you in your mentoring role? Because you're dealing with very different age groups as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, I'm a, fortunately, you know, although I'm a head coach for the under-16 age group, whilst I might not work in an official capacity, I, I do get access then to, to the older age groups, you know, so I can go and be a fly on the wall and observe how our under-17 coaches work within their players and, and see how that differs then when our under-21 coaches is preparing what are essentially, you know, young first-team players for playing in a, in a national team event. So so I get that, that opportunity to, to see all that and to work within that. As I said, one of my previous roles uh, within the Scottish FA before I actually took on the under-16s national team was as a, a coach education and development manager. So I had the opportunity to go to a UEFA coaching convention, which was a terrific event. And it was at that point, some of the colleagues there from, from Germany actually spoke about the real need for coach educators to still be active, to still have that realistic uh, learning environment for themselves so that they could then transfer that kind of practical if you like back into the theory so you know you, you get away from this element specifically within football of coach educators being guys who maybe coached once upon a time but now they focus wholly and solely on that coach education aspect and, and they, they, they're drifting further and further away from the reality so from my perspective as I say that having the dual role really works great for me because some of the things that uh, that we speak about on the, on the coach education courses and quite often things come back from the participants on those courses that, that, that are of a different perspective that I maybe haven't considered and having the, the practical application then of going back and perhaps trying something a little bit different with my under-16 group and figuring out for myself whether that works or not it has been a great benefit. You know, it means that, that when I'm going in and, and working either on the coach education courses and or working with uh, heads of children's within that performance academy coach mentoring uh, aspect, then at least there's there's some reality or, or realistic application behind it. It's not just all theory. Geez, you sound like you've got a fantastic role. It sounds so great. But let, let's flip it on its head. What are the challenges in, a, in roles like this for you? Challenges in, in roles for this, if I look at the mentoring aspect for us, we've got such a diverse range of professional clubs within Scotland. 
not only in, in terms of resources, but but obviously even in, in a geographical location and, and what that might mean to their individual programme. So if I take, obviously, in, in, the, in Glasgow here, you've got Celtic and Rangers who are abundant with resources. They've obviously got quite a large talent pool to pick from because they will, you know, look at all of the west of Scotland, but even reach across... Uh, even within children's programmes to, to, to the east. So they'll, they'll perhaps entice players from Edinburgh and the like. So they've got such a large catchment area and, and large resources. And so their circumstances around their programme and some of the things that they do uh, are obviously markedly different to uh, a Ross County Academy, for example, who are based in a in a small town called Dingwall, which is just outside of Inverness. And of course, they compete with Inverness, Caledonian Thistle already for their, their players. So they've got two clubs in a very small catchment area in very much a regional environment and their resources aren't anywhere near the level of, of Celtic Rangers. So so my mentoring obviously has to, to differ and my approach has to differ. And then even within that, you know, I'll, I'll be going and, and speaking with guys who are heads of children's programs who are older than me who have been involved in the game for longer than I have who have been involved specifically in that aspect uh, in working with children and working with coaches of, of children for the longer than I have so I have to adapt obviously my approach to those and, and on the flip side of it I'll be working with very young coaches who've obviously got great ambition and great hunger and great enthusiasm, but they just maybe need that channeled in certain ways and, and directed. So so the role itself presents a lot of challenges. For us, in terms of uh, the challenges that we have with the under-16 squad, you know, it's not dissimilar. You know, we obviously, uh, as a national association, our men's A squad haven't qualified for major tournament for a number of years approaching 22 years now since France 1998 um, our women's A squad have, have, have qualified for European Championships and World Cup in, in succession which is terrific but within our men's side of it, you know, we're having to work extremely hard to make sure that, you know, right from that foundation level under 16s, we are doing as much as we possibly can to to prepare our players for what it means to play international football. So that hopefully when those that progress to the men's A squad, give us a better chance, obviously, of succeeding. So there's lots of challenges around that in terms of how we identify talent how and when we can get our players together often enough to prepare them for international football, how and when we participate in tournaments, bearing in mind that every one of the players that, that we call upon do have their own club commitments you know, for, for 10, 11 months of the year. So, so there's lots of challenges around that as well, Brendan. I have to ask you a question, and I was hoping it would come up. You mentioned Celtic, you mentioned Rangers. This question could get you in a bit of trouble depending on how you answer it, but why is my team Celtic so much better at the moment than your team Rangers? <laughs> that is a, a whole separate podcast we can go into, but um, you know, needless to say, throughout history, both of them have had their, their periods of success and, and, and their low periods as well. It just so happens that you know Rangers are still suffering a long hangover from from some of the um, financial irregularities that they were they were rightly punished for. But they're on their way back, mate. They're on their way back. So I'm, I'm sure Celtic are enjoying the period of success that they're having just now. But I'm sure that whether it's this season or the following season or not not too long after, that, that, that Rangers will, will climb themselves back up and, and gain their place at the top of the pile. Mate, that was a very, very good answer. You have not upset any side of the ledger as far as Celtic or <laughs> Rangers fans. Well done. Mate, let's move on to leadership in football. What has football taught you in the, the various roles? As a player, manager, what has football taught you about leadership? 
Do you know it's it's interesting because I, if I go back from you know either playing days where, where I was deemed from from some coaches to have some kind of leadership qualities, what they may have been, I didn't really understand or know. You know, but I was appointed captain in a few teams and things that I played to where I am now, and and and, and I like to think I'm in still in this kind of lifelong journey of of learning. But you know, you're almost embarrassed at times about what you believed leadership was in in those days. You know, I thought it was essentially the guy who could perhaps shout the loudest and and you know, really bully people, I guess, into into um, performing to a level or in a way that that they thought was acceptable. And 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 that, I suppose, was probably born out of perhaps some of my influences. And and you looked upon managers from the, the 70s and 80s, and they had that kind of element of of almost ruling by fear. Whereas now, obviously, we're in a much different generation and, and I think it's pretty widely accepted amongst sport, but certainly football in general, that that kind of ruling by fear or, or, or trying to motivate people by fear is, is, is long gone. You know, it's very much more about trying to motivate people through love and, and, and not necessarily in the way that you would love your wife or your girlfriend, but having a, a caring element. You know, there's that, there's that cliche of people don't care how much you know and, until they know how much you care. So I think that the biggest thing that I can draw out of my time within football in terms of leadership is, is exactly how important relationships are you know and that's amongst you know relationships amongst your staff relationships directly to your players but also the relationships between those as well you know I was really encouraged obviously I know this podcast probably won't end without you mentioning you know your other love which is Liverpool and and you read things about <laughs> Jurgen Klopp and, and his approach and, and how much he values the importance of relationships and you see it in the connection that he has uh, with the players and you know the old adage about they want to play for him they don't they want to play you know kind of because of him and, and because of the camaraderie that they have amongst the teammates and everything else like that that he's helped to foster but you see the relationship that he has with the fans and even the, the relationship that he has with the media because of his, his authenticity and his, his passion and everything else like that so so it's very much that Brendan you know the, the importance of, of having strong relationships and, and how you can go about creating them how do you, again, in your environment with players or coaches and the coaching teams you're working within, because it's not just you as a head coach, you know, there's a team of people around you. What do you do to make sure you're really building those solid relationships? There's a couple of key things for me, Brendan, and again, you know, the first one is pretty widely known. You know, you have to communicate. Any sort of relationship has to have that as a, as a foundation. Probably something, particularly through my UEFA Pro Licence course, when one of our assignments on there was was kind of centred around that aspect. That became pretty clear to me that you know how you communicate with people uh, and the mediums that they may use, and, and how different signals can obviously be interpreted. And I've read a book recently, a gentleman over here who, who comes from a, a teaching background, but but played a bit of professional football and was involved in coaching at different levels. A guy called Steve Salas, and he speaks about people seeing things not through the same lens. Everybody looks, you know, through their own lens and a different lens. So the biggest thing for me, you know, aside from communicating is, is having an understanding of people. You know, I probably think back to even, you know, some of my earlier days in coaching and, and having a belief almost that, that kind of my way was the only way to, to either play the game or coach the game or, you know, why aren't people behaving in the same way that I was? And But now I'm, I'm hopefully learning a lot more. I'm starting to understand uh, or recognise 
importance of, of understanding things and seeing things from other people's perspective. You know, that there has to be a reason why somebody made that decision. There's a reason why they behaved in that way at that moment in time. So, so taking things in context. So those are a couple of key things for me that, that I try to, to make sure that we, we work with with our under-16 players. You know, is, is having an understanding of, of where they're at, not only in the in the football journey, but where they're at within their life. You know, understanding that that some other influences can be positive and negative as well. You know, be they parents, be they peers at school, be they other coaches from their club, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And making sure that how we communicate with, with each one of those individual players, it comes from that basic understanding. From that under-16 perspective, you are so integral in your role to the player development. And under-16, that's a really influential age, isn't it? So that sort of responsibility you have, how do you, how do you look at that? I just cherish it. As I say, you know, I really think I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, that there'd be coaches out there working in lots of different spheres. So those working perhaps in, in, in grassroots football, perhaps in what might be deemed lower levels who, who really have aspirations to go and work in elite environments who, who would be really envious of the, of the position that I in. So so I recognise that. And uh, and ultimately as well, I think there's, there's coaches working in environments with a greater pressure in terms of results. You know, I never experienced that a little bit myself, you know, although it was only in, uh, you know, it wasn't in the Premier League, it was in League One and League League Two, you know, the supporters and the board members and every stakeholder associated with a, a senior professional club wants you to win. So there's a pressure that comes from when you don't win two games in a row or, or when you don't win for three games in a row, there's, there's an additional pressure with that. Whereas, you know, in an under-16 national team environment, it's not about winning the game. Sure, you know, you, you're always striving for that, but that's not always the deciding factor in terms of you being measured for your success. You know, you can win games but not learn very much and you can lose games and, and still learn an awful lot. So, you know, it's, it's a case for me where, yeah, that there is a great responsibility, but but I, I cherish that and, and I would like to think that I um, sort of respond well to that. And ultimately, like I said earlier on in the, in the podcast here, it comes from an underpinning passion of, of wanting to help people, of wanting to improve people, wanting to make them better at what they do. And I would love nothing better than every one of the players that I've selected within my squad to go on and, and progress to the under-17s, 19s, 21s in the first team and, and have glorious uh, careers within football. But we also have a responsibility to make it clear that, that that path is not automatic. And again, we come back to that that accountability. Just because they're selected in the under-16s just now, it doesn't set them off and, and it becomes an automatic journey for them. There's things that they have to take on board and be accountable for, for every step uh, along the way. I want to just go back to the pressure of... Now, being a football manager in a professional environment, you've had those experiences, you've had the pressure and unfortunately or fortunately, depending which way you look at it, the pressure on a manager of a football team is great. You know, it's performance driven. How do you handle that as a leader and being that person ultimately has the accountability, at least in the fans and the board's eyes? Everybody would would handle it, and if you like, in their in their own unique way, and it's understanding, or, or, I guess, having the opportunity to to go through the range of experiences when you do handle it well, and you think, okay, I'll make sure I take a note of that, and and, and the times when you haven't handled it so well, and and you learn from your errors, I guess, you know, it's that old adage, you know, nobody ever learned anything without making a mistake. Unfortunately, certainly in the in the upper echelons of professional football, very few head coaches or, or managers, particularly the younger ones and the inexperienced ones, 
get that opportunity to, to make too many mistakes and learn from because there is unrealistic expectations, I think, a lot of the time from supporters, which you know filters through to the board. And, and of course, the media love nothing better, particularly here, than, than to jump on, on something and make a story out of it if a team doesn't win for a couple of games in a row. So there's a huge pressure. I think you know more and more now we're starting to understand you know, because of high-profile managers in the past have spoken about that position and, and some of those times being actually really quite lonely you know you feel quite isolated and understanding now that even the leader of your, your organization needs support you know who are the people that provide that support and how does he get access to it but also those guys themselves realizing that they don't have to try and fight these battles and and figure out all the solutions on their own there is a real good support network alongside them and whether that, you know, help them in terms of their analysis of the technical and tactical aspects of the game, or whether that's uh, somebody that they can lean on for a bit of emotional support, or someone that can they can lean on for a bit of, you know, support in terms of their mental health, or even at times a physical health. There has to be ways that you learn to to cope with things, and I think trying to make sure that you keep everything in context, Brendan, is always the biggest thing. You know, ultimately, even if you you are Jurgen Klopp managing Liverpool, trying to get back to where they believe they should be after 30 years of not winning the, the, the Premier League or First Division. And he spoke about, obviously, when the, when the coronavirus struck, that there's nothing more important than people's health, you know, and uh, said quite often, but but the recent period that we've all experienced certainly shines a light highly on that and makes that pretty clear about what that statement's all about. So, you know, you have to keep things in context and whilst football is important to so many people, if you're talking about that level of the game, ultimately nothing is more important than people's health and, and people's life. So, you know, we are going to hopefully still have, have tomorrow to see and tomorrow to work. So it's keeping those things in context and realise that, that it is a game that we're, that we're, we're working in. I want to go back, I'm not sure how good your memory is, but 2003-2004 and you were a player manager of Brisbane Strikers. I look at that as it's almost like the the CEO of an organisation also being the technical expert. Can you talk a bit about that, the challenges you face being a player and expectations of high performance on yourself but also by other players, but also being the manager of an environment like that? There was almost a the thing that youthfulness brings you and it's that that fearlessness you know when, when the opportunity is offered to you you don't think twice about what could go wrong you just think oh this will be a fantastic experience yeah let me go for it and you, and you jump in with two feet if somebody offered me that again or somebody asked me about you know is it a good thing to, to go and do that I would advise them against it but at the same time the way I kind of looked at that period Brendan, from both perspectives was really if I was a player within that group how would I expect to be be treated? And obviously still being a player and, and understanding how I would want to have been treated by my coach in previous years, that was quite an easy connection to make. So in terms of trying to manage the group and, and manage individuals, that was the, the fairly simplistic approach that I took. How, how would I want to be treated? So I tried to treat the players in that way. On the other side, I didn't want to become one of these guys that removed themselves from the playing group and, and almost brought a bit of an ego to themselves and thought, well, I don't need to do as much preparation as you because, you know, I'm, I'm the coach and and I'll just pick myself in the team and everything else like that. And I was of an age, you know, only 28, where I was still 
somewhere close to maybe being in my prime, but certainly a long way, hopefully, for, from retiring. So it wasn't like I was 34, 35 and ready to kind of ease off and just play a, a certain number of games within the year. I wanted to play every game. So so I made the, I made sure that, that I trained in every training session and, and wanted to be a leader by example, if that's the right expression to use in, in, in that way. And so those were the, the kind of two, I guess, defining aspects of the approach that I took to that. But I certainly wouldn't want to do it again because... In the simplest way, I was really only kind of giving myself half toward being a player and only half toward being a coach. You know, so much more now that I've learnt that goes into being a coach and being a leader, I neglected just purely and simply because half my mind was on what I needed to do as a player. And obviously looking back as well, there was some things that maybe got me through and perhaps my physical condition and a little bit of experience got me through. But having the right kind of mindset to go and perform at my optimum as a player was taken away because 50% of me was trying to coach, uh, was trying to focus on the coaching aspect. So it was difficult. I'm glad I went through it. I'm glad I had the opportunity. And I'll always be thankful for the Brisbane Strikers for giving me that opportunity. And what it did do was, you know, we had some relative success in that period. So it, for me, highlighted the importance of the things that we spoke about earlier on. You know relationships because that that was that was challenging for me because we had players in there that were ages with me, players that were older than me, and had players that I'd played alongside for a number of years. So whilst I wanted to make sure that they were treated in a way that that uh, I would want to be treated as a player in a coach relationship, there was also you know some challenges for me to make sure that I tried to gain some kind of respect as a leader and somebody that, that had to make decisions on the on their sort of futures, you know, and, and certainly on their on their present when it came to naming the team every week. You were nominated for Coach of the Year and which is again in that sort of dual role an absolutely fantastic achievement. I think what we had within that group was a real sense of purpose and a real unity in that purpose. And what I mean by that was, and it probably helped in a sense of me getting that that recognition, as you said, by um, nominated as a coach of the year. I think when the media, particularly in sort of Sydney and Melbourne, which was quite focused in the National League at that time, saw the Brisbane Strikers playing squad and we hadn't retained too many of the kind of recognised NSL players from the previous couple of years. And then they went and appointed a, a 28-year-old, you know, as a player coach. I think a lot of the media and, and other elements within the game wrote us off, which played right into our hands in a sense because we developed a bit of a siege mentality. We'd also brought in a couple of players who were stepping into that, you know, National League environment for the first time. So they had a real point to prove. They had a real hunger and desire. And we we carried that kind of um, purpose throughout the season that, you know, nobody really rated us. But you know what? We we know how good we we can be if we sort of stick together and we stick to our plan, which we did throughout that season and, and, you know, managed to, to make the playoffs. And I think that's what kind of led to that little accolade. But I put that down to, as I say, you know, having that kind of unity and that that purpose and having that real sense of purpose, that that extra motivation. And and probably I didn't realise again at that time how important that was for the group to kind of have that aspirational quality and and how much of a part that played in us having that relative success. It's only now when you start to understand some of the meaning behind that, that you start to look for that within your own teams and your own groups. You've just spoken to teamwork unbelievably well around that common purpose and it's the galvanizing effect I guess even that maybe the media had for your team are there any other aspects that you've experienced around teamwork either in a coaching level and or a player level that has really created a a great team 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of other things now that, as I say, I've, I've really learned along the way. And, and I'm sure, well, I, I really hope that I can look back on what I'm doing now in 10 years' time and think, God, what was I thinking? Because, uh, you know, I've evolved even more. But some of the things I really focus on now within our coaching or support staff team is making sure that each one of the the members of that group feels valued. You know, I, I worked as a, as a player and, and probably I fell into the trap a little bit uh, in the earlier days as, as a coach where the coach does everything and, and takes everything and really leads everything and he wants to be the, the kind of focal point. But, you know, your, your other staff are there because they bring a certain expertise and your other staff, obviously, within, you know, your group or your organisation want to feel valued and they want to make sure that they make a contribution. So I'm, I'm very conscious of them understanding that, that they do feel valued, but also making sure that me as the coach who, who ultimately has to make decisions is making those decisions based upon all the information and the knowledge that's been put forward by the other support staff. And because there is so many aspects, I mean, you touched upon it before, even just doing the team sheet, but but now that there is so, so many more aspects we're aware of and we try to cover in terms of preparing a team and preparing individuals, you know, be that from a sports science, a sports medicine background to your analysis and everything, else like that you know the coach can't do all of those so it's great to have every one of those staff members bringing their expertise to the table to make sure that we have that combined effort to, to make sure that the players and the team are better so making sure that you you empower people and and you bring them together but within that you know you become sort of more of a manager rather than a coach in a sense and making sure that, that everybody is clear of what their expectations are within their role clear of what how it all contributes and fits into the to the bigger picture and that way of working that we have. And obviously that's when you start going back into that communication and how do you communicate with your staff as a group? How do you communicate with them individually to make sure they've got that clarity, got that understanding, and they've got that feeling that each one of their roles contributes to, to making the team more successful? I want to go into culture and contrasting culture You've played in a number of different countries around the world, but let's stick with Australia and Scotland. Tell us a bit about your own experiences and the differences you see, maybe good, bad and ugly, in the football culture in Scotland versus Australia. I think what you've got in Scotland is a really rich history of the game and it becomes so ingrained in the way of life for people that, Rightly or wrongly, and we spoke about the the power of good that that football can do and can bring to people, it becomes almost part of their identity. So, you know, you grow up a Rangers supporter or a Celtic supporter or an Aberdeen supporter or a Hib supporter or a Hearts supporter, and that's who you are. It defines who you are and, and and it shapes every kind of almost waking moment in every aspect of your life you know you'll maybe meet your future partner because she's also a a hib supporter if that's your team and you can't get married on on certain saturdays in the year because that's when the team plays and and some of your experiences that you, you have are following your team and all the ups and downs and the highs and lows that they have that and so you know it can be a, a positive thing I think where in Scotland we kind of blur the lines is is it, it starts to really take over and that there's other elements that are attached to the game, unfortunately, from a historical point of view, that still linger on and we've not really been able to rid them. And I'm, and I'm talking about sectarianism here. So, you know, for the people that maybe not as aware, Celtic generally are, are associated with the kind of 
people who have been brought up as, as uh, in, in the Catholic faith and those who support Rangers, generally speaking, supposedly have been brought up in the Protestant faith. So there's this um, sectarianism that exists. And, you know, aside from, you know, supporting your teams, which already develops that tribalism, you know, you've then got this this kind of really horrible um, sectarianism feeling that there's just always hanging around amongst that, and and it's, it is awful. It is born out of a lot of history, which probably a lot of people supporting either club don't have a great amount of knowledge or understanding of. And for me, it just shouldn't be associated with sport at all. You know, sport is, is something that brings the power of good and, and everybody appreciates that you'll have your own teams to support, but supporting them should be exactly that. And it starts with the game and it finishes with the game and, and that's all. So, so unfortunately, Brendan, we've, we've got a, a bad side to it. But as I said earlier on, there are so many positives, and and I think that as I said, that history and that it's ingrained in the culture. I think it's a wonderful thing because it it certainly you know gives people the vehicle to uh, to be able to be involved in sport and and all the positives that that can bring in terms of being part of a group and and belonging somewhere, which obviously all human beings love to do. I think within Australia, it seems to me to be a a really good balance with it you know where there's obviously a, a a huge passion for football and i think you know the multicultural aspect of australia is is a huge advantage with that you know the people that come from all the different parts of the world and as we know football is the global game uh, but i also think that the the you know to a large extent the people whilst that it might kind of um have a, give a strong connection for them they know essentially where to draw the line so it doesn't necessarily shape their identity to a large extent and there isn't that uh, any other kind of history or, or, or baggage that associated as, as we might do here in Scotland. So, you know, there's that aspect to it. If I, if I focus on the history side of it as well, I think there's elements that hinder some progress here in Scotland. And I'm talking about this mentality of it's the, the way we've always done it, so we need to keep doing that. You know, I don't think there's enough open-mindedness in Scotland to actually look at what's happening in the present and try and make some decisions that might alter things because of how they would look in the future. You know, the game and society has obviously evolved an awful lot in the last decades, where I think Australia, and whether that's a kind of, again, a young nation, you know, I think they're a lot more open-minded in terms of being able to do something different. You know, if it's not quite working, well, there's got to be reasons for it. Let's investigate what they are and let's change things and try and improve them and make them better. And I think the A-League is, is evidence of that. And understand from, from a distance that that's perhaps plateaued in, in recent times. But the good thing about that is they're not sort of sitting still and just trying to rehash the same ideas, it seems like under the, the kind of stewardship of James Johnson, that they'll really go and try and take the game forward again. There's an understanding they need to reshape some things around the A-League to evolve it and to make it more attractive. And, and that's one of the things that, that I love about uh, Australian and Australian football, that they're going to be prepared to do that. And, and hopefully the benefits will come in over the next few years. Just to put some context around everything you've just said, and particularly around Scottish culture and I guess that sectarianism and look I don't want to focus on the on the bad at all because there's so much more good than bad but can you just give us a bit of context around the importance to supporters of what they call the old firm game you know Celtic versus Rangers what does that mean for your team to win that game in the season or those two games in the season it shapes your identity and it's who you are so so you're uh, your feeling, your mood can be shaped by the performance, but probably more importantly, the, the result. 
of your team. And similarly, I guess, to any of the big clubs around the world, you know, losing a game is, is unacceptable, particularly if, if it's against your greatest rival or, or if against a team from, you know, the bottom end of the league, you know, those types of things. They can't afford to lose games. And the challenge that these teams have got, obviously, is that every team that goes and plays against them is their cup final. So just taking a couple of random teams, Hamilton might play against Celtic and take them right down to the wire and perhaps, you know, get a draw or maybe even beat them on a given occasion. And the following week, go and play against Motherwell or go and play against Hibs or go and play against Aberdeen and, and be beaten soundly 4-0. And you think, well, hang on a minute, it's not the same team. But, you know, that's the cup final when they go and play against Celtic. You know, whereas they go out the following week and play against these other sides, they're not, they don't have that same motivation. But for the supporters, as I said, it, it really does shape your mood. It shapes, your, you know, how you feel. Um, it can affect people obviously in the workplace because you know you go into to any kind of workplace environment within Glasgow or the west of Scotland you'll you'll quite often have a mixture you know so you'll have a group there who will be uh, be high if their teams won the derby game on the weekend and, and a group that's very low and there'll be some banter I guess and I'm sure that there's lots of occasions where that overspills into to something that, that that's taken too far and, and sadly you know violence has, has come out of it too all, all too often so that's the that's very much the downside unfortunately and you know whilst as, a, as i say you, you get that the world over regarding that tribalism aspect of well, you and my team and, and you know we're against the other team but there's that that underpinning as i say the element of sectarianism that kind of fuels the hatred and the, unfortunately it's something that they haven't really been able to shake no matter what sort of campaigns we try and I don't think it's a fight we should ever try and give up on, but um, you know we haven't had too much success up to this point in time, sadly. Mate, if you had a final piece of advice that you would want to give people, I'd like you to keep around that coaching side of things. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to move into a coaching role? I like the rule of three, Brendan. So, so three things I would like to try and share with the people there who are interested in coaching, who are in coaching and want to try and succeed. The first thing is be sure who you're doing it for. You know, I see an awful lot of coaches and hopefully that they'll evolve in time, but I see them and I, and I look at it and I think it's all about you. You know, when, when you're coaching, I read something recently around leadership and it was about you should be really trying to create an ecosystem, not an ego system. So, so it isn't about you. You know, be sure about who you're doing it for. You know, and for me in, in, in terms of coaching, if you're coaching players, well, obviously it has to be about the players. I'm fortunate that I do get to do a bit of coach education and mentoring. And for me, it's about those coaches. You know, it's not necessarily about me. The second one would really be make sure that you're committed to being a lifelong learner. I think that's the one of the biggest things. You know, I, I was probably, you know, fortunate in, in some ways, when we touched on it a little bit earlier, where I, I experienced some relative success early on in, in my coaching career, which perhaps indicated I had some kind of aptitude for it. But there was also probably some negative elements to that where I felt, uh, well, a certain part of me maybe felt a bit too overconfident in my beliefs and, and what I was capable of doing. So fortunately enough, I've hit lots of speed bumps along the way and I've realised that, yeah, I need to learn an awful lot more and know an awful lot more and I've developed that real hunger and passion for and, and that thirst for knowledge. So make sure that if you're going to be a coach, you become a, a lifelong learner. And the final one, I think I just sort of mentioned it there is, you absolutely have to be prepared for setbacks and challenges because that's a, an absolute given that that's going to happen along the way and they'll come in all sorts of shapes and forms and sizes. So so be prepared for those. 
Mate, how can listeners get in touch with you if they just wanted to touch base, say, uh, Stuart, you've shared so much great information today. How do they do it? Probably the easiest way. I do have a bit of a presence on social media, so they can get me on, on Twitter or uh, or LinkedIn. So Twitter handle is at McLaren Stewart, and I think I'm reasonably easy enough to find on, on LinkedIn as well. So that's probably the two easiest ways to, to get in touch, and it'd be great to hear from from people um, whether they've got questions or, or comments or feedback. would be terrific. I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure having you. I mean, again, we haven't spoken like this for many, many years and you've certainly, you know, just your thinking, what you've shared today, your advice at the end, the whole process around your mindset with coaching and the mentoring. I have to say, I think the the Scottish FA are very, very lucky to have someone like you with your mindset and very, very lucky those coaches that you're mentoring and particularly those under 16 players coming into an elite environment to have someone like you with that mindset so mate thank you very much for sharing these bits of gold today i really appreciate it thanks for being a guest on the culture of things podcast great to talk to you buddy absolute pleasure brendan Uh, great to connect once again and i'm I'm sure that we'll be in in touch a lot more often from now onwards It's always great catching up with old football mates. Stuart and I first met when we were 12 years old and since then we have had the opportunity on several occasions to play football against each other and also in the same team as each other. It really is these sporting moments that bond people together forever. Stuart has devoted his life to football. In his current role with the Scottish FA, He is playing a big part in helping to develop young players in Scotland and also helping coaches develop through his mentoring role. As I said in the close of the interview, the Scottish FA is very lucky to have someone like Stuart who is as dedicated and passionate about football and the development of players and coaches. Like any great leader, Stuart has a passion for developing himself through lifelong learning and more importantly, developing others. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Stuart. My first key takeaway, be clear on your motive. As Stuart said, you need to be sure who you are doing it for. And he has made his motive clear several times. He has a passion for making people better. This motive ensures that as a coach, it is about the players. And as a coach mentor, It is about the coaches. This motive for making people better drives everything he does and keeps him focused on creating an ecosystem, not an ego system. My second key takeaway. Team members must feel valued. We know that ruling or motivating by fear doesn't work. Leaders must have a caring element. As Stuart reiterated, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When people feel valued, the strong relationships form. The level of expertise is better understood and utilised and the communication between the staff, the players and between each other all help to provide a solid foundation for performance. My third key takeaway. Great teams have a sense of purpose and unity behind that purpose. This is a prerequisite for a group of people becoming a real team. When Stuart was the player manager for the Brisbane Strikers in the NSL in Australia, 
the media wrote them off. He said this contributed to their unity and siege mentality for the group. This unity and purpose to succeed gave them the collective drive throughout the season and they punched above their weight to make the final series. As he said, he didn't understand the power of the purpose and unity at the time and this is, unfortunately, the reality of a lot of leaders. So in summary, my three key takeaways were Be clear on your motive. Team members must feel valued. Great teams have a sense of purpose and unity behind that purpose. If you have any questions or feedback about this episode, please feel free to send me a message at brendan at brendanrogers.com.au. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.